when you're plodding along and you're doing the next music video or you're doing the next PSA or you're doing the next short film with, with a friend or you're doing the next documentary. It all seems like a bit of a blur and, and that's, I think, the main enjoyable part about, you know, working without limitations. You know, I was simply looking to do the best work with the best people. The first thing you create, even though it sounds very obvious, the first thing you're creating is an image. And the, from there, then you add movement or you add color or you add shadows or you add lighting to, to help with the, the storytelling. And action. Welcome to the Art of the Shot podcast, and may the Force be with you. Happy Star Wars Day, and thank you for tuning in to the Art of the Shot. This episode is brought to you by Evidence Cameras, and I'm your host, Derek Stetler. Today, I have a special interview to share with one of the great cinematographers of our time, Greg Fraser, ASCACS. He was one of the main people responsible for the look of the Disney Plus original series, The Mandalorian, which is the focus of our conversation. said you were coming. They said you were the best in the Parsec. Would you agree? Due to COVID-19, I managed to get a hold of him during a rare pause in his busy shooting schedule. He's currently shooting the new Batman film, and he shot one of my most anticipated films this year, Dune. He's also the eye behind Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, Snow White and the Huntsman, Zero Dark Thirty, and Lion, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Cinematography in 2016. During our conversation, you'll learn about how he went from shooting still photos and then short films in Australia to working on the biggest projects in Hollywood, including his work on The Mandalorian and the intricacies of a groundbreaking piece of technology that made the show possible, which is set to become the future of filmmaking. I hope you enjoy, and if you do, please subscribe to be notified of future episodes. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much for joining me, and welcome to the Art of the Shot podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's really great to have you on. I'm very excited to be speaking with you. Um, I'm going to start with um, a question about how you got started in cinematography. Looking back, can you trace your interest in cinematography to any moment in your childhood, and what sparked your passion for visual storytelling? Well, I never really... Well, I, I never really knew what a cinematographer do, did. Or, so I never had an overwhelming desire to be a cinematographer. But I think as you learn about um, uh, learn about the industry and you learn about what you like in life, it, you kind of learn, you start work, working towards a trajectory um, that you eventually end up being on. 
so you know in, in high school I sort of enjoyed media studies and enjoyed some photography um, and then decided to, to major in photography at university and the I thought being a photographer was kind of my, my, my career path you know until I kind of worked out that you know photography is a, an amazing art but everyone tends to as a photographer you tend to work quite singularly and you know when I discovered that uh, filmmakers were doing similar things to what I was doing as a as a stills photographer that kind of piqued my interest a fair bit so you know at that point I thought well maybe I want to become a director um, and then worked with a few directors and, and realized that actually my 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 passion and my interest was best served in cinematography so I pretty much came from a a stills photography background and learned the art of movement through watching films, through working with directors who had, you know, different backgrounds. And, you know, I'd sort of come up the the, the, the ranks, but in a different way to a lot of DPs that might have studied film. Mm, you didn't go to film school? No, I did not go to film school. Okay. No, there was a there was a film school in our in our city in Melbourne. Um, and they put out a lot of great filmmakers and I often, when I was a young cinematographer, was kind of going, oh, man, I should have studied film. You know, I should have studied film because that probably would have been a better career path. But in hindsight, I actually don't believe that. I think the way that I did it, for me, obviously, just for me, was the best way because I learned how to make an image first and foremost. And I've kind of taken that to my cinematography where the first thing you create, even though it sounds very obvious – the first thing you're creating is an image, and the from there, then you add movement, or you add color, or you add shadows, or you add lighting to to help with the the storytelling. Mm, yeah, that um, that sounds like kind of a very almost at the same time a bottom up and a top down approach. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, I saw a film called um, Rat Catcher, and it was an amazing film that, that um, Alan Kutcher shot and Len Ramsey directed. And I, I would suggest that any of your listeners, if they haven't seen Ratcatcher, should see Ratcatcher. Because mm. to me, that was the defining moment that I, that I looked at that film and went, oh my God, this is a series of amazing still images. Uh. But in those still images are incredible characters, beautiful storytelling, um, incredible drama. So I, I went, that to me was the, the, the light bulb moment where I said, well, hang on. Actually, I think having studied photography meant that I no longer felt inferior to my film student friends because I actually went, well, all the skills that I've been learning over the last few years r- relate directly to filmmaking um, and that film kind of showed me that that was the case. Mm, interesting. Well, I certainly have never seen it, so I'm going to add that to my must-watch list now. I mean, Lynn Ramsey's an amazing filmmaker, you know? And, and Yeah, absolutely. I know of her. She is. And, and that film particularly, I, I thought, for me, came at the right time where I, you know, where I, uh, it got, had a, such a huge impact. But her work with, with Owen on that, mm-hmm. on that show was fantastic. Yeah. How old were you at that time? 20, perhaps. Yeah. Okay. So how did you go from being, you know, an inspired uh, filmmaker who's aspiring to, you know, be a cinematographer 
and get to where you are now? What choices or lucky breaks really helped take your career from from there to the next level where it is now? I don't know. It's a good question because uh, you know at the time when you're when you're plodding along and you're doing the next music video or you're doing the next PSA or you're doing the next short film with with a friend or you're doing the next documentary, it all seems like a bit of a blur. And, and that's I think the main enjoyable part about you know working without limitations. You know, I was simply looking to do the best work with the best people, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, it, and, and, and that went from, you know, being a 20 year old in Melbourne who I'd make friends with designers or graphic artists, titles together or, or, uh, music videos with a design bent or, you know, my friend Garth who, who wanted to start making documentaries and we made documentaries together you know so mm, the director of lion correct yeah we made a great documentary together um so about parking inspectors in in melbourne mm. and so you know if you'd said to me when i was 16 do you want to make a documentary about parking inspectors i would have gone oh i never thought of that but sure but the main thing was to try and find the best just do the best work effectively. Mm-hmm. So when, when you talk about sort of lucky breaks or stuff like that, I mean, listen, definitely meeting the people that I met, including people like Garth, you know, including um, people like Jane Campion um, and getting to shoot with, with, with those people sort of taught me a lot about filmmaking because they are such mm-hmm. incredible filmmakers. And, you know, I also did a, you know, a, a, I did a, a few little successes along the way. One of the one of the earliest short films that I did was called Cracker Bag, and I made that with a friend of mine named Glendon Ivan. And you know, we made that for very little money, and everyone worked for free, and you know, everyone sort of big borrowed and stole film stock and cameras, and to make this move, this this little short film, and it and it won a, a Palm Door at Cannes in 2003. So wow. You know, that was a bit of a leg up too. Having a, a film that had that you shot, winning a Palm Door, you know, it was a bit of a, uh, a bit of a leg up. So, it feels like you know the, the question, how did I get to do what I'm doing now? It was a series of very small, very seemingly obvious little steps mm-hmm. forward. Mm. That no one step. I mean, you tell me. I mean, you based on what you know of my career, maybe maybe there is one big step that pushed me along a long way. I don't know, but it doesn't feel like that. Well, I mean, just based on your, your um, filmography, I think the biggest, the first really big budget film, I would usually say, is the one that then shows to the studios and producers that, you know, you can um, deliver at that kind of level and then you just keep getting hired on those types of projects going forward. Yeah. And I think that was Snow White and the Huntsman, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yes, you could say that. Um... And then and then Zero Dark Thirty after that showed, you know, you can handle a range of things and really, um, you know, create um, an effective, you know, visual aesthetic. I mean, yes, the thing is uh, that... The, it... Before before um, Snow White and the Huntsman, directly before that, I was mm-hmm. shooting Killing Them Softly, you know, with Andrew Dominic. But then that didn't come out for quite a long time after. Yeah, all those movies didn't come out until well after Zero Dark Thirty, and you know. I know it's interesting, huh? I'm sure there's a whole story about that. Exactly. <laughs> before that, there was Bright Star with Jane Campion, and 
you know, that was that premiered at Cannes. So, yes, you could absolutely on, on paper go, well, that's the big break. And had that break not happened, you know, would I be in a, in a similar position or a different position? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But you know what? It's it's funny because the, the looking at it in the rearview mirror mm-hmm. is, is less um, – less interesting in the sense that I, again, they, they all felt like natural small steps, even though on paper you might go, yeah, well the budget of Snow White and Huntsman was 250 million versus 30 on killing them softly. So you might say, was that a huge step up? It didn't, but it didn't feel like it. Oh, interesting. I was, I was working with a friend, Rupert Sanders, who I'd worked with many times before on commercials. We were doing, yep. On commercials. We weren't doing anything bigger than we had done on commercials, mm. you know, like we had, if you added up all the commercials that we'd done before that, it wasn't bigger than Snow White and the Huntsman. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm not downplaying the size of that because of course it, it was, it was, it was big and important, but you're probably right. Like maybe that was the point where studio executives went, well, he hasn't done 30 commercials that add up to 200 million. He's done, one movie. So mm-hmm. I, 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 I don't know. Different yeah. people have different things. I mean, yeah. 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 I don't know. How about, um, any specific choices you made that looking back, you are, you know, either very proud of or something that you would advise others to, you know, make as well. Well, it's, it's about taking opportunity when you, when it's, when it's given to you, even though it may not, may not fit in, you know, on zero dark 30, um, I started that directly after Snow White and the Huntsman and I just had a baby. Wow. Literally just had a baby. And so from a timing perspective, it was, it was not great. You know, it was a lot of things wrong with that, the timing of that. And, but my wife was very supportive. I loved the subject material. Loved. I mean, I was you know very interested in what it was, the story it was telling. Yeah. Um, the, director and producer were yeah again it was one of those things i was like you know what this is going to be really hard to be away from my newborn for six months and i and i was it was really mm. very sad actually and very hard but i can imagine you know but we forged i forged new relationships with my crew you know i have i had crew on that that i still have to this day um or that well, sorry, still work with me to this day, as opposed to the other way around. Mm-hmm. They're kind enough to, to 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 work with me. So, so it was the right decision to to to, to do that movie for myriad myriad of reasons. Yeah, and you had a personal connection to it, and yeah, I can imagine it was a very fulfilling experience creatively for you. But to make that decision, sure, must have been super hard for you at the time. Yeah, it was, and it placed. A lot of pressure on my wife, who was there by herself for a period of time. And, you know, again, this is where, you know, as families, you never make decisions in a vacuum. Every decision yeah. one makes influences uh, a whole heap of other people and things and stuff. So, no, that was that was probably one of those decisions. But, listen, in, in hindsight, it was like, of course you take Zero Duck Dirty. Of course you take that movie. Right. Because it's obvious. Um, yeah. You know, there have been other other things, again, that have come at the wrong time that that haven't been quite right but ended up being the right decision so yeah there are lots of things Mm -hmm, like that mm -hmm, yeah well one of those decisions uh was to work on the mandalorian so i'd love to switch gears and and talk about that a little bit you if i am correct you were both a cinematographer and a co-producer on the show right correct yeah yeah okay so 
Well, let's talk about the volume, an innovative visual effects technique that allowed for real-time in-camera compositing that was developed and employed for the show. Yep. Can you uh, tell me about what it is beyond that and, and how it actually works? You know, there's a bit, bit, a bit of a holy grail of filmmaking, which is it's ever since the, the first days of filmmaking, um, producers and directors have wanted to take all the work inside and build it in a controlled environment. You know, and that's why a lot of studios exist because you build sets in the studio so that you have control over day or night, wet or cold, like sound. Right. Like you have full control. Like filmmakers are constantly striving for full control. There is the flip side of that coin where there are some filmmakers that want no control. Like they want to be thrown like curveballs left, right, and center. They want to be whacking them out of the park and you know, and, and having the, the, the passion and the, the success of having done so. You know, look, look at a, uh, a director like Catherine Bigelow mm-hmm. talking about Zero Dark Dirty. You know, Catherine loves that environment. She loves being thrown curveballs. Yeah. And so... The unpredictable reality. Exactly. The, the holy grail then is to have an environment that you build that is interactive but allows for those happy accidents to occur. Mm. And so you want just enough happy accidents to, to be successful uh, at the style that you're trying to make, but you don't want to have so many happy accidents that you're, you're battling too many of the elements. So what the volume does, it allows you to, be in, to build an environment, as in either an exterior environment or an interior environment, that then allows you to find frames within that environment that that are good for your for your scene. You don't want to have to pre-design backgrounds, not knowing exactly where you're going to be with an actor. You know, an actor might come on set and have a really fantastic idea overnight about how they want to play it. And they don't want to play it the way that you designed it, and they might be right. And you want to be able to say to that actor, "Yep, go and play that in the corner," and it's much better than what we were planning, which was at the table and chairs here. So if as a filmmaker you give so many limitations to your to your actors and your crew, you end up with a film that may feel a bit staged or a bit kind of uh, precise in a very, you know, unhuman sort of way. Yeah, artificial. Yeah, so what the volume allows... It allows you to build sets and environments that ordinarily you would not either not be able to build or if you did build would be a lot more expensive. And it allows you to take textures off real things and photograph them and put them into a 3D model, which then goes on the, the walls of the volume. So the possibilities are immense. Like one of the, 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 the great examples I use is let's say you had a – an amazing location that you found in North Korea. Now, there's no chance that you're sending a film crew to North Korea to shoot a scene in this hotel lobby, let's say. Let's call it a hotel lobby. But if you can get someone to photograph that hotel lobby, then you can then take those photographs, put it on a 3D model, and that 3D model will then become the background for your shooting inside the volume. And let's say the hotel lobby you want in North Korea but you find a fantastic hallway in, 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 in another country that's inaccessible to film crews. You could photograph it, 
bring it back into the 3D volume and you could be in those locations effectively without having to be in those locations. The other thing to think about is, is pickups and reshoots, which are quite common in, in big budget filmmaking. Often when there are actors that are not available at the same time and you're trying to balance schedules and stuff, if you can put a, a rebuild a set when a certain actor is available six months after the original build, rather than actually rebuilding, but you've got it photographed and you're putting it on the, on the volume, well then your options are, again, they're endless because you're, you're putting the set back up without actually building the set fully. So that's a, I mean, that's a small taste of the advantages, but that, that is literally 2% of what this technology can do. Wow. Well, I think you had worked on a, a rough version of this kind of technology to create interactive lighting for Rogue One. Um, but some of the considerations limiting that incarnation of the technology were, well, they were technical, but they were also practical. Like backgrounds might change in post and with the way, you know, VFX pipelines work, only pre-visualized effects could be used on set for lighting purposes. And then the final animated VFX would be added later. Yep. So how were those issues uh, addressed for the volume? Well, bear in mind, there was quite a few years between the two. And, you know, technology is, a, is an incredible thing and it changes mm -hmm. at the rate of knots, as we know. And like the perfect example is the, is the pixel pitch of the, of the LEDs that we had on Rogue One. They were 9 mil. Mm -hmm. those ones the ones we used on mandalorian were 2.8 mil wow and by pixel pics you're, you're talking about the distance between the center of each individual pixel on the screen right correct yeah okay so pixel pitch is one of the one of the things to use to evaluate uh the quality of a led screen um right it's literally the actual resolution of the screen basically right it, yes it's exactly yeah it's the amount of amount of pixels doesn't necessarily the pixel yes. density yes exactly so yeah. the the nine mil was harder to photograph because it would moray and right. we all know what moray looks like it's it's very hard for visual effects to to deal with moray because it actually if you zoom in on the edge of images moray creates a kind of tearing around the edge of of of, of objects mm. and that tearing is no good because it means that when they cut the object out it, they don't get a clean cart and it's, it's a bad thing. So on Rogue, we had to use shower screens in front of the uh, screens, literally plastic shower screens, to oh, wow. diffuse the... To kind of blur it. To blur it, yeah. yeah. Huh. Uh, on Mandalorian, that wasn't feasible because we needed to create a full, almost 360-degree view because of what was going on inside Mando's helmet because of all reflections. So we needed smaller pixel pitch and we needed the ability to be able to see it off axis because sometimes with some LEDs, if you look at it off axis, it starts to change color, go pink or green. Yeah. Oh yeah. I noticed that on my devices. Yeah. So if you combine that with the reflection in Mando's helmet, well then it's, it adds up to a bit of a, a bit of a bad, uh, bad situation where suddenly your, your sky plate on the ceiling looks like a different color to the sky plate on the, on the walls. So how was that addressed? Um, well, we, we auditioned different panels. We, we auditioned different panels at different angles. And 
we we tried different uh you know we, we were, we're aware of those limitations and we we're aware of all these problems and we just auditioned and chose the best ones for our purpose interesting okay so but but, but again it, it, it bear in mind i mean there we just, there probably wasn't the amount of panels that we needed in existence at that point in time so are you talking about when you were planning for the mandalorian or on rogue one uh mandalorian okay because there's a lot of panels and they were all high quality 2.8 mm-hmm. millimeter uh, and they had to provide a seamless ceiling and back wall to do the job properly so how did you how did you acquire the necessary amounts if, if they didn't even exist we had to we had like the walls i think were a different pitch they were 2.8 uh-huh. and the ceiling was five mil we made a uh, we made a call on that and said all right well we had to choose lower quality pixels on the ceiling because they were less likely to be behind a character. They were more likely just to create reflections. Right, and and that was adequate for that purpose. Exactly. Season two, though, um, and you probably need to speak to, to to Baz, who who headed up season two. Uh-huh. They 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 had a little bit more time up their sleeve to arrange stuff. So, yeah, I I think it's definitely worth doing a having a chat with Baz at some point about season two because, you know, I, I'm talking to Baz all the time because whilst they were doing season two, I was off um, shooting Dune and prepping the Batman. So Yeah, two of my most anticipated films that are coming out soon. Yeah. Well, me too, actually. Me too. I'm sure. So <laughs> so whilst they were, whilst they were um, prepping all that, uh, whilst I was doing that, they were sort of prepping season two and they made some decisions. Um, you know, there was always that world of like, okay, if we had our time again, what would we do? Right. And they, 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 they made some changes. So you should definitely get him on and have a chat with him because I think he, he's, a, he's a wealth of knowledge about this, this technology now. You know, there was a, a point in time where, you know, I was the most experienced on this technology because I'd shot the most. And now Baz is the most experienced. So I defer to Baz in a lot of, a lot of times I'm talking to producers about it. I'm like, well, you know what? Let's let's get Baz in the phone. Mm-hmm. Let's get his opinion. Right. Now, tell me again. It's Baz Idoin, right? Idoin. Idoin. Okay, Baz right. Idoin. Yep. So, um, for season one of The Mandalorian, you shot, I think it was three out of nine episodes, and Baz Idoin shot the others. So, uh, is that correct? Uh, there was eight in total. There was eight in total. Oh, eight. Okay. And yes, I'm, I'm credited with one and three and 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 half of seven and Baz is credited with, with the rest. The thing is that, you know, it's uh, the problem, the problem that I have with the credit system on, on the Mandalorian is even though it says I shot episodes one and three, Baz was extremely um, involved in the shooting of that. And even though Baz is credited with two and all the other ones he was doing, I was heavily involved in, in, in a lot of that early on. Right. I'm sure. So, Unfortunately, the, the credits, sadly, don't properly represent on season one the work of each of the, the DPs. So Of course. That's kind of how it happens on, on TV yeah. series. I mean, even IMDb is different than that, which is why I thought there were nine episodes. Because uh-huh. even though I've seen the show, I just you know forgot how many episodes there were. Because it lists you having shot three of them, and he shot six, which yeah. obviously... Yeah doesn't quite add up properly but i guess one of those episodes must be one you guys are both credited on correct it's well i think it's 107 107 uh-huh. yeah but that's the, that was the enjoyable part too is that we got to 
uh, we got to work together on on, on the, the development of this. You know. Yeah, that was my question about that. Um, how you work together on it to establish and maintain the look? Well, it, first and foremost, the, the look. Okay, the look is extremely important for anything, and I and I'll stand here and go, yes, it's all about making sure the look is appropriate to the story. So that's first and foremost. The biggest challenge, though, for us was making sure that the technology wasn't wagging the dog effectively. So there was a very strong possibility that had we made the wrong decision at certain times, that the the tail of the technology would be wagging the dog versus the other way around. It needed to be that this volume created a problem-solving device for the filmmakers. Obviously, there are limitations, you know, because the volume is only a certain width and can only do certain things well. But what I was adamant about was that we wanted this to solve filmmakers' problems. And often the, the problems that filmmakers have is, you know, when you're shooting at a location and you want to turn around, suddenly you're moving an entire unit base or an entire crew of, you know, uh, easy ups or, or trailers mm-hmm. to see in the different direction. And that takes time. And time is the most pr- precious resource that a filmmaker can have because if you're taking an hour to turn around then you're taking away you know an hour of that director's time with his actors yeah so to try and solve the problems that filmmakers have of the technical aspects of filmmaking through through putting that onto a volume um was was kind of the the fun part it was it's funny i tell a tell a bit of a a story to some people who ask about this, but I remember when I was briefing most of the directors who came on, you know, not the ones, not, not, not Dave, of course, because David was one of the, the, the early, um, the early voices in the room when we were designing it. But as directors were being hired and they were coming on, it was kind of my job to sit with them and explain what the volume was going to be and what the limitations were going to be and what the benefits were going to be. Mm-hmm. And I remember every single one of the directors, when I explained it to them, they were like, wow, okay, really? So we're in the desert, and but this volume is only 75 foot wide. I'm like, yeah. They're like, what happens if I want to get a wide shot? I'm like, okay, so here's what you do to get a wide shot. And they went, okay, so what happens if I want to do a tracking shot? It's like, here's how you do a tracking shot. And what happens if I want to get a reverse on the tracking shot? It's like, well, we turn the world around and we keep the camera where it is or whatever the, oh, whatever the, the solution was. Yeah. So, wow. but what I also sort of said... Um, it's like playing God, isn't it? A little bit, a little bit. But I said, so there are all these limitations, yes. And, and I agree with you about the limitations. And once you get your head around limitations, though, you realize that the, the positives for this are far more powerful than we all think. So, I mean, I'd love you. Yeah, you should talk to some of the directors there that, that got to work with the technology because I know that, you know, I know that Taika um, loved working on it. Taika's embraced this technology fully. You know, he said to me because he was working on a few projects at that time and as he was sort of learning how this technology works, he was like, this is amazing. He said, would this work for X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, yep. He goes, would it work for A, B, and C? And I went, well, B, not really. C, yes, and A, definitely not. I'd be like, okay. And you, make, you can see him taking mental notes so that I think when he, 
next gets to the typewriter to write his next script, he'll be like, he'll he'll stage things in such a way that they could be done in the volume because oh. it's such an efficient way of of making movies. So yeah, when I first heard about it, I was thinking, you know, it's obvious this is going to be the future of filmmaking. Is is that how you feel now after having used it? I do, I do. I, I feel it's I feel it's another technique in the toolbox you know i think Mm -hmm. you know a film like let's use you know zero dark 30 or like the hurt locker as an example Mm -hmm. like that that those two films could never be done on uh could never be done on the volume it just would not suit a filmmaker like Catherine or like if there's if there's any form of hunting and gathering and finding it, it, it doesn't suit the world you know if there's an element of that, but then there's also some some big set pieces that need to be controlled that you need to put your actors, you know, at a rock overlooking uh, a city at dusk for a 20-minute scene, well, maybe you go out and you do your wides at the rock and at dusk and you bring your close-ups onto the volume and do just your close-ups mm-hmm. on the volume. So. It's right. not it's it's not a blanket solve for everything by any stretch. Right. It's also it's also not a blanket won't work by any stretch, you know, for all for all filmmakers. Well, I mean one of the reasons why I I worked so hard at, at making this t- like building the possibilities for this visually was so that a filmmakers that I like to work with it will solve some of their problems. So that again, if someone, you know, like like um, Garth has a, a scene that he wants to do in an environment that he can't afford to build, well, do we build it in 3D, and do we shoot it on a volume? You know, I mean, part of the problem too is the the, the field of dreams theory is that these things are once you build them, filmmakers will come and use them, but so far they've only been built for a series of Mandalorian. But if there was a company out there, and hopefully some of these companies' executives are listening to this, that would build this and make it accessible to other filmmakers, particularly um, more independent movies as opposed to just large films, right. I think that the, 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 this technology will, will grow and it will, it, it will allow filmmakers more possibilities. Yeah, well, the tight integration of all the different kind of departments needed to to fulfill the promise of the technology means you'd kind of need a like a you know unless you're doing it on, on the big budget level like you are where you have all that um to come together you need a company that brings all those different um you know departments under one roof to be able to provide that service in which case i hope someone who has the desire and the means to do that is listening because that could be you know a huge uh, amazing company that frankly, I think, uh, needs to, needs to be born into the world. Yep. I a hundred percent agree. And it's the type of thing to have, it's got to be a one-stop shop where people understand what they're trying to create and the limitations. And, and, and I think that the more filmmakers can, can use the technology, the more they'll understand it and, mm-hmm. and the more exciting it will be because, you know, I'm excited to see, for example, I'm excited to see season two that Buzz did because, they, by all accounts, pushed the, lim- the limits a little further. You know, when we started Mandalorian episodes one, two, three, you know, whatever order we shot it in, we had to be a little bit more 
conservative with our choices where I, we had to make choices on things we knew would be successful, um, backgrounds, I mean. And that came from the experience of doing the testing six months prior, and it came from doing the work on Rogue One, and it came from just being a, a DP for 20-plus years. Right. So there were some things I knew would, would hit out of the park. It would be absolutely successful and would look amazing. I just knew. Then there were other things that I was like, eh, I'm not sure if this is going to work as well, but let's try it. And so, yeah, I think that there are some things. I mean, I'm I still yet to see the whole series properly because I moved to London to do Batman just as the season was finishing, as the season was middle way through. So I've got I've got to watch some of these episodes and uh, get on the phone to Baz to to quiz him on this because this is a, as exciting for me as it is for everybody else oh wow well that would be an amazing conversation maybe the two of you could come for a follow-up episode of the podcast yeah might be be interesting might be interesting yeah (laughs) yeah exactly hi let me take a moment to tell you about the sponsor of this episode evidence cameras if you're in the los angeles area evidence cameras is a fantastic place to get all of your rental gear needs met They're a tight-knit team of working camera professionals passionate about everything camera-related, including helping you create your vision. They strive to go beyond just accommodating your gear list, which I might add they can do no matter what you need. With tons of gear and extensive relationships, they can help you get any piece of equipment you want. Located in Echo Park, just 10 minutes from downtown LA, I highly suggest you check them out for your next project. My prediction is that in... I reckon maybe five years or six years, um, the smart companies, be the smart studios, are going to have a a system that is built almost full time on a stage, Mm. and it's going to be it's going to take up a what what shape that is. I don't know because I think we're still determining what shape that is based on different shows, but there's going to be shows that that they design into that space. It's the same way that when you're shooting a studio show and you've got only one stage available to you and it's a long, thin one, well, then your your set becomes a long, thin set. And I think there's going to be that. There's going to be a volume on, hopefully, on every big studio in the world, if not every studio, at least every city in the world, big city, I mean. And there's going to be a company that you work with in prep that's like a virtual art department and when you go in and shoot, you use the, the, the people that are there full time to run it. So, wow. It's a beautiful vision. Well, it just means again, I mean, the next step is that you in theory could be doing a scene with two actors in different parts of the world virtually. Wow. You know? Yeah. And one camera could be shooting person a in Los Angeles and B camera is shooting person B in London. And it's all happening in real time. I mean, listen, I don't know how, how much anyone will want to do that, but knowing the schedule of actors and the way the these films work, I'm sure there's going to be a point where there's a virtual scene shot one day with a real back with real uh, on a real volume. Oh yeah, I, I'm certain that the technology with 5G and everything coming out is going to allow for that. I think even you know Frame.io they haven't made announcements so much about this, but I know they're working on doing you know immediate real time you know camera to edit. Um, transfer of footage and that kind of technology will certainly be um, you know ripe to be applied for maybe real-time 
you know, shooting of an actor in L.A. with another actor in London on different volumes. That will at some point happen, whether or not it's five years, ten years, you know, whatever it is, that will have to happen one day. That's the next step. Yeah. Um, there's a couple considerations with this technology, though, that I am curious about. W one of them is about focus. Yeah. If the video walls, for example, are not as far away or as close to the cameras, the elements they're displaying are supposed to be, the focus will naturally be different than it would if that location were real. So yes. how, do, how, do, how is that issue addressed? Well, you're right. That is, that is one of the major problems at this point because... The, the, the sets that work the best, if you've got a 75-foot round volume with a lid, the best sets will always be where the structure is the same distance to where the wall is. So you, a, circular, a circular location with round walls, you know, 75 foot apart from each other. That's going to be the best solution. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that accounts for like 0.1% of all sets. Yeah, so exactly. It, that's, that's not really a... A solve. It's not like design everything as a circle. So there are other ways. There are we either we make the walls flat, and we build we make movable LED walls that imitate the walls of a real set. That's one solution. Mm -hmm. um, once LEDs become better to shoot off-axis, that's going to be a very good solve, I think, where you're actually not building a set out of materials, you're building a set out of the shape of LEDs panels. So. Mm. That's, that's one thing. The second thing is to have some ability to do live in camera out of focusing. So the screen goes out of focus to a certain level that looks natural to the camera. Um, yeah. I, I, I do, I mean, you've highlighted the Achilles heel of the system. Basically, that is the major problem of the system. Interesting. And Well, I can actually imagine a solution. Well, go ahead. You were, you were continuing well, on with that. The, 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 the way we worked around it on Series 1... Mm -hmm was we chose the largest format that we could be the Arri LF mm -hmm. and anamorphic lenses that cover the LF, mm -hmm. which was the new LF lenses. So we were using the biggest sensor we possibly could with the anamorphic lenses to have the focus fall off as fast as possible uh. so that the difference between 20 feet and 1,000 feet wasn't as big of a difference as if it was on 35 mil or, or you know, smaller sensor. Mm, makes sense. But it's, it still didn't solve all the problems. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because I was going to ask about um, some of the decisions regarding the camera chosen for this. On, on Rogue One, you used the Alexa 65 and then here you used the Alexa LF. And, and um, you know, I was going to ask about what makes that large format the right choice for this project and why you went with the LF over the 65 but there there you you went and answered it the technology kind of drove that decision um but of course it really works for the aesthetic of the show yeah i mean it feels it feels anamorphic and you know we we didn't have uh, the the lenses on rogue one were all quite old you know and they're kind of unique and we needed lenses that were newer but still had an aesthetic that was right that's where the the new um, lenses from Panavision kind of were good for us. So, uh, which lenses did you end up using from them? They were the um, uh, I forgot the name of them actually. I'm sorry, that's terrible, isn't it? Oh, that's okay. Um, I can 
look it up. Here we go. I have the answer. It's Panavision's full frame Ultra Vista 1.65x anamorphic lenses. There you go. The LF. Uh, the yes, Ultra Vistas. Yeah, Ultra Vistas. Okay. Yep. Very nice. You know, you, when you were talking about the focus issue for being the Achilles heels for this technology, the idea came to my mind. But it's 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 one of the Achilles heels actually. But yes, sorry, go on. Oh, one of them. Okay, one of them. Ah, there's multiple. Well, <laughs> maybe you can mention an, another. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I, I mean, listen. Every system, like shooting on location, the Achilles heel of shooting on location is the weather. Right. You know, the Achilles heel of shooting on stage is the fact that you've got to create natural sunlight with artificial light. So there are Achilles heel for everything. So yeah. it's just important to know what those are. Of course, you have to know the limitations of what you're working with in order to be able to maybe use those uh, limitations to your advantage or at least be able to circumvent them. Yeah. Um, one of the ideas that came to my mind, which I'm sure you guys had thought about, but I'd be curious why it wasn't implemented, is using, um, for example, the the Cook Eye technology that gives all the metadata about the focusing position of the lens and, and focal length and such like that. Could you just kind of tap into that um, data stream and input it into the projections that are being mapped to the um, the volume and have then the focus adjust in in accordance with the way the lens is being focused. You could potentially. I mean, the the eye data stream. Yes, that's one of the the the, the solutions that you could tap into. Um, but but know also too that the the ARRI follow focus system has the ability to to, to map unelectronic lenses. So therefore you get to the option to choose non-cooks if that was what you're, you're interested in. Um, right, oh well that technology is used on other brands of lenses as well I think because they made it open source I believe. Yeah, exactly, I'm not exactly sure. I think the way that was used to a certain extent but it was used um, through I think through a Preston system or through, because bear in mind that the volume knows everything about what the camera has going for it. It has to. It has to know what the what the size of the lens is. It has to know what the t-stop is. Mm -hmm. um, it has to know where the camera is in relation to the subject. So there is there is sensors and there are cameras all around the volume, and the camera itself is completely mapped. Mm. So the the system knows everything about what the camera is doing. Okay. Like it knows where in space it is, and it knows uh, the t-stop and what the focus is doing. So the next step, yes, you're absolutely right. The next step is to use the focus data and say, all right, camera's focus pulling from two foot to 10 foot. And this is what the background should do in response to that. But that, that is a lot harder than it sounds because you're effectively blurring the backgrounds and it's not. It's very hard to make that look 100% natural. Right, especially then you'd have to input the way that specific lens blurs, because obviously the anamorphic lenses you use have a whole different way that they mm -hmm. blur when they're focusing and defocusing compared to you know master primes. Exactly, and so you know that's that's part of the prep work that you do when you're setting up a show is you map all the lenses mm -hmm. uh, well in advance. So you definitely do that legwork, but you're right. You visually would need to take a, a camera out to the desert, shoot what a circle looks like at 10 feet, and when the camera is at one foot, then put the circle at 100 feet and then keep the camera at one foot. Like there's a whole series of tests you would need to do yeah. to to make what that circle or that square or that person or that highlight look like when it's focused. I think I, I'm, I'm not confident that you're going to 
will will ever have a system that is 100% pixel picture perfect for focus. Um, I, I just because you've got two planes of focus, and I, I just don't know if it's actually ever feasible to do that. But I think what you will what we will have is something that's acceptable and good. Do you know what I mean? Something mm-hmm. that you for sure you look at and go, listen, it's not exactly right, and the scientists can probably knock it off and go, yeah, that circle isn't quite as oval as it should be, but it's oval enough to get you the feel that you're after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and again, I'm, n- I'm never one to take second best, but the thing is there's a point where you go, all right, well, if, if the audience doesn't notice it and it still is pleasing, is it acceptable byproduct of, of the benefits that the system has? Yeah, well, even without all these kind of quirks uh, figured out, it it was very much acceptable to my eyes on uh, on the first season of The Mandalorian. So I can only imagine it will get, you know, imperceptibly um, imperfect in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing because we, we, we worked very closely with ILM and ILM worked, worked very closely with us on, on making it right. You know, it was, again, one of the, the beauties of this is the, the, every department was very much in each other's pockets. You know, we were highly re- reliant on the technical guys to get the to get the machine up and working properly. Um, we were highly reliant on ILM to solve issues. You know, if we saw a a line between the real set and the three D set, mm-hmm. you know, can ILM resolve that and fix that? And so that was the there was a lot of discussions involving. You know, can you guys resolve this? Can you fix that? But we also gave them, and this is the advantage. We also gave them some some better looking pictures to start with than they would have gotten if we were shooting against a blue screen. So the pictures that they had to begin with were better than had we gone a different path. So, you know, we relied heavily on them. They relied heavily on us. It was all very much a, uh, um, you know, very much a sort of a a round robin of, uh, of creative input. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And, and the fact that, I mean, one of the issues that I had brought up on on Rogue One that I was curious how you addressed it on this was the fact that, you know, the the, the VFX is going to change in post. And so backgrounds might completely be different. So all this stuff has to be like almost completely pre-visualized ahead of time and, and determined so that when you end up going to post, you're only kind of fixing little issues rather than actually changing anything. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that... When you bake the lighting in so accurately, then it, it does lead to the question of, oh, what happens if you want to change the background? Yeah. And then you could ask yourself the question and go, all right, well, do I just light it so flatly and, and badly? that I don't think you would ever do that. <laughs> no, exactly. So then what do you do? You, you light it the best way you can for the for the subject that you're dealing with on the to- at the time mm-hmm. and then hope like hell that they don't have to change it too much. Mm-hmm. You know, versus the opposite, like you said, like I said, it was the opposite is you just light it flatly that they can relight later. It's like no, no one wants to see that. No, definitely not. And certainly not for something like Star Wars where the the images kind of demand a certain uh, quality to them and, and you know, a very defined, you know, specific kind of vision in, in how they're coming across. So doing it like that is not going to work. Totally. Yeah. 
Now, rear rear projection for me is known to, uh, let's say, not maybe not always look fake, but certainly fairly unconvincing for the most part, um, for a lot of reasons that we had already discussed. And, and I was going to ask about what about this technology allows it to work so much better than rear projection, because it kind of feels like it's just a slightly elevated version of it in terms of replacing, you know, the projection with an actual image source. Well, I've, I've heard that a lot. I've, I've heard that criticism... Well, not not criticism so much, but I've heard that comment a lot about about this just being a rich man's rear projection. And uh-huh. yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, and, and I I got to say I, I feel very strongly that that is seeing such a small part of the bigger picture. And you know, if you if you look at an image, one thing I'll explain like and this is why Mandalorian was a good test because it had a guy in a chrome suit. Right. Right, he was like a mirror ball. Literally, like what they use on, on set to get all the reflective um, information for post-production to accurately map onto the scene. Exactly. So so effectively, he was the litmus test. He is the litmus test. If he works, everything will work. But if you look at a picture, if you've got a picture of anything, of anyone, of anything in a movie, like what is behind them is contributing very often, not always, you know, obviously if it's a big backlight or something, it's different. But, but generally... The, the image that's behind somebody is contributing very little to the light on them mm-hmm. directly. Obviously, if there's a light behind camera, sorry, behind them, it'll, it'll reflect off what's behind camera and reflect on their face. But reprojection effectively is just about putting an image behind somebody. And then you have to light the, the foreground. You have to light them. And that's, that's taking the opinion that what's behind them is the most important thing in the scene for light. And it's not. It's what you don't see on camera, which is the most important thing for light. Mm-hmm. You know, unless again, unless it's a practical on a on a on a practical light on a bedside table and it's lighting them and you're seeing them both in shot, that's the exception. But for the most part, we try and keep our film lights out of shot. Of course, that's what we do as film people. Yeah, and so that's because the real world works like that. When you're talking to somebody, most of the light that's hitting that person is coming from behind you. Yeah, or to the side of you. And you're not seeing it, so it's very much um, it, it, the only the only similarities between reprojection and this is that the image that the camera sees is on camera. That's the only similarities. You know, reprojection rarely ever lights the subject, mm-hmm. and the difference was, and the most successful was what Claudio Miranda did on Oblivion, where he lit the the apartment with with front projectors. Yeah. Now. That's that's rear projection. Yeah, well, it's not. It's front projection. But yeah. they didn't they didn't treat it. They didn't turn off all the projectors that were out of shot. They kept them all on. That was creating the light. Like that was what sort of created the the light that was accurate. And so when you looked at those images, you're like, yeah, because every piece of chrome was reflecting something that was accurate. Like they weren't having to put solids in to block. C stands and like everything was reflecting things in the right way. So like it's not really reprojection. I mean, it's like, it just so happens that what the camera sees is accurate, but it's, it's, it's much, much bigger than that. It's it's like much more important that the, what's outside the, the frame is, is presenting the right information. Right. Makes sense because you're creating a, a world and and therefore there's always going to be a world that's outside of the frame and you need to account for that yep and that's why again it's you know you ever since the first day of the film world where we started to light on stage we tried to replicate very very hard to replicate things like 
a massive blue sky or a massive ball of fire in the sky. Right. Like, you know, we've, we've never really been able to successfully create those. It's very hard to because you need massive sources. But this does that because you full 360-degree interactive light. Right, and it is a massive source. It's a massive source. And you can, you, can, you can do with it what you also do with the real world. You can put solids up. You know, you can, you can cut light off, oh. create shape. You can, you know, the, the, the downfall, the other Achilles heel, is that it's very hard to create a sun because the panels just aren't bright enough. And they're also, the way that they, they project the light, you know, they, they diffuse it. They're, they're, um, they spread it out in a way that is not a pinpoint, you know, hard source like an actual sun. sun exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But could you just put an actual bright light in front of where the sun should be in front of the screen? Couldn't you just like lower it into a frame like that? In theory, but then again, yes, you, you absolutely can. And you do, and you have, and we have. Um, but then again, that's assuming you're seeing it by, by, by that, you're seeing one part of what the sun does. Because, yes, I'm looking at right now, I'm looking at the sun shadowing my hand on my deck at my house. But, but to get an accurate representation of what that sun is, there's a lot of bounce. The sun's also hitting my house and off a window, and it's creating fill that, yes, I could probably create artificially. Um, but if, if it's all there to begin with, then you're instantly starting from a place of accuracy, mm-hmm. and it instantly looks right. And then it's up to us if we want to we want to cut that sun and put our own sun in. It's just it's the same as the real world at that point, isn't it? Like if we're if we're if you're shooting something and you want to have convincing sun throughout the entire day, well, do you cut the sun and then put your 18K backlight? I mean, sure, sure. If that's what you want to do, then you can. Um, it's just what an 18K doesn't do. It doesn't create a lot of ambient. So, you know, we, we did tests where. You know, we wanted to shoot scenes in the middle of the day on the volume, but we could never get an accurate um, amount of ambient fill from the sun because, again, the sun doesn't just light the person. It also lights every ounce of sand around them. Yeah. And so to do that, you're going to need a light that can – it's a magic light. It can, can bounce back on the subjects but doesn't bounce on the LED volume but also has one source – so that there's not multiple lights hitting the the rocks in the background or the people or the, so it's a very very hard task to to do an accurate version of that. Okay. Did you? How did you end up actually um, addressing that, or did you just kind of work around it so you didn't have those types of scenes where you were using the the volume? Uh, we would shoot that on a backlot. Oh, no. Okay. So you actually did it the way you'd have to do it then, in sort of in the real world using the real sun. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And that was, listen, that was a, that was a, a conversation early on, you know, with, with all involved where, you know, do we, do we do something like that and, and make it real, realistic, or do we light the sun on the volume and have it look a little bit artificial, you know, and the decision was to make made that it should not look artificial. You know, we need it to look as, as honest as possible because what, when you suddenly start getting robots and people dressed up in very strange costumes lit with artificial light, I don't know. It, to me, it doesn't ring true. Mm-hmm. I, I felt very strongly, as did John and Dave, that that we needed to set up the elements in the real world. Well, I agree with you personally. I think the more the the more that you are trying to have the audience suspend their disbelief. Uh, with the characters or you know elements of the world, the more 
you need to make the lighting or other aspects of the world as real as they can be in order to anchor that uh, artificiality you're trying to make them believe. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, again, that's one, uh, it's one opinion and, you know, people listening to this will have their own opinions and I, well, I highly, highly respect. Oh yeah, of course. Everyone's uh, opinion. But, but at the same time, this is part of what we do as, as filmmakers is we make a call on something, we make a decision on something and, and we say, no, this is the line in the sand that we're drawing and, and this is how it will be. And that creates a bit of uniformity across the, mm-hmm. across the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you have to keep that uniformity. And speaking of uniformity, having shot Rogue One and, and now The Mandalorian being the second, I guess you'd call it a Star Wars story you, that you've been involved in. I guess literally the Rogue One was called a Star Wars story, but they're in, kind of individual stories within the Star Wars universe. Uh, I think that's quite unique. I'm not sure of any other DP or even director who shot more than one uh, story in in this universe. So it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's only been you. Even, I thought of that. even like Dan Mendel, who shot multiple films, they're all in the yep. same story. Yep. So were there any rules in regards to camera movement or lighting or otherwise the aesthetic that were established to create the feeling of being in the world of Star Wars? I had a huge advantage having done Rogue One in that I got to study um, all the Star Wars movies um, ad-, ad nauseum. In fact, it was my job to watch Star Wars. Like Gareth and I wow. watched Lucky a, 4- you. a 4K version of Empire Strikes Back and like, you know, in the theater and it was like, um, uh, I mean, mind blowing. Yeah. So that was our job. It was a pretty, pretty terrible job, I must say, like, but <laughs> we took one for the team and, and, and did it. The thing is we got to study what makes Star Wars Star Wars. Or And, you know, it's funny, you... And I, I had this if, – if you remember what Star Wars was, and this is why we watched Empire Strikes Back in high res, what our, what our memory of the film was versus actually what it was was different. Mm-hmm. So it's funny how when you remember what a film was, you kind of feel like – I mean, listen, let's, let's not pull any punches. I mean, the, 1978 and 1980, a lot of things were in their infancy. You know, a lot of the effects were in their infancy and stop motion and, you know, and, and all those things were in their infancy. Um, but what those films did at that point in time was they took those new technologies and they used them and they brought them to a wider audience and they did an amazing job of it. So I remember we watched Empire Strikes Back and it was on film and because we were deciding, should we shoot digital or film? And we went, all right. Mm-hmm. We were totally open-minded about this because – like I love film, Gareth loves film, um, but we also know the power of both formats. So we watched these movies and went, wow, okay, that's not how we remembered it. We remembered them a, a, a lot differently visually to what they are. And um, so we made a decision on some things to to go with our memory of it versus what they actually were. And that was why, for example, we chose the large format digital because it felt like mm. an epic format. Like I remember Star Wars feeling so big and so grand and so incredible. So yeah. when we had the choice, we we're like, let's choose the biggest format we can. Let's choose the biggest format we can to make this movie. And yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that. I mean, the uh, a lot of the film is visual effects sequences and those actually were shot on the biggest format. They were shot on VistaVision cameras. That's true. So in a way, your memory was right. Yep, it's true. Yeah, it's very true. Um. You know, so when we made that decision to to do that, you know, we, we made sure 
but we also had the camera, which was small now, so it could go on go on the shoulder and we could do some handhelds with it. So, you know, going back to the question about was there a particular style, we, we didn't we didn't sort of copy Rogue One style or a New Hope style, but what we did do was watch a number of westerns and samurai films that all generally had a very slow-moving camera. And they had the the cameras didn't move very much in those in those films and if you if you understand why if you watched a film set in the 1950s the camera was the size of a pickup truck you know so yeah. they they took them a dozen men to move it and if they're doing a, a dolly push well it takes a lot of effort to do a dolly push so every shot they ever worked out was all very considered every shot was very much considered so there was a the benefit to us on on Mandalorian was that by using that style, it actually sh- suited the technology down to a T because, you know, the volume doesn't allow for fast whips and fast moves because there's a certain latency mm. um, between the camera and the images on the screen. And that latency might only be four frames or three frames or whatever it is now. But when you do quick whip pans or moves, it kind of shows its, it shows its, uh, you know, it's, it's downfall. So, um, by, by choosing a camera style that was slightly less frenetic and less reportage, but more, more considered, then it kind of suited us aesthetically. But again, it also suited, thankfully, the technology. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because that seems to be in, in stark contrast with uh, Rogue One, which m- made uh, much more of a sort of cinema verite kind of documentary handheld um feeling you know with the with the choices that were made yeah exactly but if you watch if you watch rogue one there was definitely still a mix there. yeah true true like the when we when we but yes you're right there, there, there was a lot more it was a lot more verite in rogue one than it was in mandalorian and that was deliberate because mandalorian was uh sort of more again based on kurosawa and you know um old older western films so yeah and it fits the story perfectly because it's about a you know a gunslinger it's kind of a, a, a space western um is there any shot that stands out to you as one you're particularly proud of achieving either on a purely aesthetic level or for the technical challenges you overcame to get it on uh, on the mandalorian well i can tell you this every single no is the, is the short answer no there is not one particular thing not to say that i'm not proud of anything but there's not one that the the entire process was something that was so uh, so on one hand enjoyable but stressful because every single day we were making hundreds of new decisions that we never would have made on a traditional movie. Um, so and it goes from like why do we choose certain pixels and why do we put them in a certain direction? Why do we angle them a certain way? Why is there a certain height for the walls? Like why are they 18 feet rather than 18 foot five? Like why, like why, why, why? Every day we were making mm-hmm. literally hundreds of decisions um, that I've never made before in my life. Like normally when you make a movie, you know, we talked before about, you know, big movies and going up a step and stuff. Well, each time you step for me so far, it's felt like a natural step forward there has been a few bigger leaps but nothing that's 
made me so stressed that I don't, I don't know what we're doing. Yeah, they felt inevitable, basically. Exactly. On The Mandalorian, every single day, technically, we were basically like stepping out over a chasm, like, and hoping like hell that there was a invisible bridge a la Indiana Jones mm-hmm. there to kind of catch us when we stepped out. We had to have that faith that every step we took was we, we weren't going to fail at. And it was, that was a very, very stressful. And when I say stressful, I mean it in a good way. It was like the neurons were firing again. Every day I'd come home with a headache because my head was absolutely hurting from, from having made, making all those decisions multiple hundreds of times a day. And so th- th- there came a point where you know, I realized that all these decisions were going to get kind of lost to the ages because I, for one, couldn't remember what we did yesterday let alone what we're doing today, like, you know, all last week, so I should say. So there are certain, you know, there are 80 decisions that we made yesterday that I'd already forgotten about because we'd made them and moved on. And, and those decisions, again, I mean, they, 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 they stem from how, when do you do your location scout with your director? Um, do you do it, do it in wireframe? Do you do it in virtual reality? Do you talk about the scene on, the, on a table where you're doing a table read? Do you stand inside a a pre-built set that's lit. Like, wh- how, how do you do your location scouts with your director, knowing that you're going to be on a volume in, you know, two months' time having to shoot this scene? Um, like, you know, technically, what sort of, you know, what, what sort of lenses work best on this, this volume when you haven't even built the volume, you know, because it only gets built a week before you shoot, and how do you test properly on a small volume? So... Throughout that process, the ability to actually, you know, when we got the first couple of days in the can, it was like one of the most joyous experiences I've had because it actually proved that it worked. It worked, you know, and that was the one thing that it was always a little bit dubious about. There was no plan B with the volume. You know, we had, thankfully, on our, on our set, we had a backlot and we had another stage that had some set builds. So that was all good. That was all good. But if the volume didn't work, there was no plan B. I, had, I didn't have a lighting rig just outside ready to bring in to, to light from above and from the sides. I just couldn't do it. The volume had to, had to, had to work. So, yeah, the, that was one of the most stressful things, but ultimately one of the most enjoyable things because we, we succeeded at that. Wow. S- sounds like the the very epitome of brave filmmaking. Yeah. You had to completely commit to an idea before you knew it would work. And even when you didn't know that it would work, you um, had to have faith that it would. And, and, you know, and it ended up doing it. (laughs) Except for a few Achilles heels, it sounds like. But, you know, you found ways around that. Yeah, but those Achilles heels also we knew about. So it wasn't like we walked in there and go, "Oh, oh, that's a shame. It doesn't work with sun. It was like, no, no, no. I didn't think this was going to work with sun, and it doesn't in its current way. But yes, you're right. Because every it seems like with filmmaking, every step, every step, you know, a new bit of kit or a new bit of a new LED screen panel or a or a new lens or a new camera is, for the most part, the next natural step. You know, like it's, you know, the the, the before the Alexa, there was the D21, and that was a digital camera, and then they released Alexa. And it was like. Yeah, of course. That's the next step, right? Feels like an evolution. Yeah, yeah. And everything is kind and, of. And this feels more like a revolution. Uh, that's yes, because nothing, none of this technology was 
was kind of up and working together before that. The other way I describe it, it's like, you know, before a car was invented, before the car, in inverted commas, was invented, yeah, there might have been wheels and there might have been a, a drivetrain and there might have been a steering wheel of some description and like, there might have been parts out there that go into making this thing called a car, but it wasn't until someone went, well, hang on, let's take an engine from a small steam train or, or a small tram or something and we'll put it in the front of this this thing and we'll use a, a drivetrain from a from a coach and a steering wheel to move the wheel or whatever it is like then suddenly someone goes wow that's a car as opposed to a stagecoach or a tram or a train or something it's a, it's a whole different beast yeah and so whilst the parts were kind of there it took a lot of ingenuity for for the people running that the, you know what we call the brain bar who were the guys in charge of the it's a good name getting it all up into the screen and the 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 ilm guys took a lot of skill on their behalf to get it working because you know as filmmakers you know none of us are, are trained how, how to get the computers all sunk up and that's not our training our training is to say to the people that sync the computers all right well that doesn't feel right how do we make it feel right um can we make it bigger or smaller or can we you know, this is what we need to make this project uh, work. So, you know, it's um, yeah. For, from my perspective, it was it was incredibly uh, enjoyable, but very stressful uh, opportunity. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I can completely imagine. And the the comparison you gave reminds me of a a quote from Henry Ford. He said, uh, "I believe I'm paraphrasing." If I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the the even even people, you know, who whose entire lives have been devoted to filmmaking um may not have even thought to to ask for something like this, but of course now that it exists, everyone wants to, you know, make use of it. I and I hope they will because the thing is I know how much power is is in this system and I've even personally like you know, I only had the opportunity to shoot on it for, you know, for for a month, month and a half. You know, I prepped prepped for four, five, six months, whatever the prep time was. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have that opportunity because I, I I left to go to another project, which was always in the cards. Right, Dune. Right. Um, but yeah, but but and and that's why like I know how much power there is in in possibilities. Like the, throughout the entire prep period, throughout the entire shoot, ever since then, I've been like lying in bed awake at night going, wow, you know what? We could design a really interesting chase on this thing using motion-controlled machines and motion-controlled cameras, but pre-pro... It, like, the, the, the possibilities are endless. Mm. And I'm hoping that at some point there's a very, very smart... I mean, not that there aren't smart people now because there are... And ILM's pushing this really well. Um, but I'm hoping that, that there are other smart filmmakers out there that, that go, hey, what about X, Y, and Z? What about we build, like I said to you earlier, like why don't we build this entire set out of LED panels and and the, the production gets a 1,000 LED panels and, and instead of reconstructing a set or changing the set, they just make the walls out of LED. Well, yeah. And, you know, and or whatever it is, and just do the testing on that because I think that the, um, the possibilities – now, along with, you know, um, interactive on-set LEDs are limitless. Like, for example, having film lights 
that can be controlled through the Unreal Engine. So that can speak, because currently they all speak via the DMX mm-hmm. um, process. But imagine if you had an LED light that was a film LED light that would actually speak to Unreal's, and Unreal would give, out in, give it instructions. So Unreal gives instructions to the panel, but imagine it gives it instructions to your film light. To the film light as well. Wow, yeah, that's a great yeah, idea. Like a, if there's a moving car or there's you know, moving overhead lights rather than a, a light on a, on, a, on a spinning rig, maybe it's a light through Unreal that correlates with the background. You know, if you've got guys driving through the streets, maybe your film lights like them. So there's going to be there's going to be those developments and smart companies, um, smart lighting companies are going to be the ones at the forefront of that. Yeah, I'm sure. Sounds like a very natural extension of uh, the technology and something that'd be very useful and totally possible. You know, it just takes people who know how to make it happen, um, happen. For people who don't know, the Unreal Engine is uh, a gaming engine that uh, creates photorealistic uh, environments, basically, right? That's right. It's been used for for shooting shooting games or for yes exactly it's been used for 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 games for a while and it's getting better and better and better and i I believe i'm not sure if season two used um unreal engine or they used a uh, uh, an ilm uh, proprietary and you probably need to find out about that but i'm I'm a strong supporter of ilm because i I've, i've worked with them so much and i know how talented the people are there oh they're geniuses um, and I, they are they're geniuses and they're doing an amazing job on this and i and i think that um you know i'm i'm looking forward to working with them again in the future oh i'm sure on on an unnamed project ah but you know what it is uh maybe okay good good for you <laughs> you got you got that rather than just like a, a wish of yours in your back pocket like i'd like to work with them again on something that's good well i i look forward to hearing what it is at some point yes um so uh, just before we wrap up the interview, there's uh, really one kind of uh, tangential question I have. Um, but right before that, I'd like to just, you've kind of hinted at it, but I'd like to hear directly if there's um, something you would call the, the most valuable lesson you learned from, from your experience on The Mandalorian. Anything that, that you're now bringing into all your other projects, apart from, you know, your experiences with the technology, something maybe more like a, a philosophy um, of approaching the craft? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I, I don't know if I'm uh, wise enough to, to bring some um, in, intelligent kind of philosophical uh, results to that, that process. I mean, I, I mean, all those things that I just talked about are things that I enjoyed. Um, what I also still enjoy is is tailoring a solution for a director that suits the director and you know this technology again like i said i think is going to be of much interest to a lot of people that i know and a lot of directors who i have a lot of respect for and want to work with and and have worked with um and i think there is going to be a lot of great solutions through this technology uh but i but i believe that it's not going to be the be all and end all and the, 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 you know, I've had some conversations with some DPs in the past that have been quite dismissive of this because they're like, well, suddenly we're going to have to do everything on this volume. I'm like, well, that's not, I don't think that's the case. I think you have to push to sometimes not do stuff on the volume. You know, the volume is, is one new tool and toolbox, and it's a very powerful tool. It's like a Swiss Army knife, but the Swiss Army knife, you know, you're not going to build a house with a Swiss Army knife. Like, 
you're going to do a lot of things, but you're not going to do sort of other things. So you can do a lot of things really well, and but it, some things it just falls down at. So, you know, I, I learned a lot about what those were, and I, and I proved to myself that my, my theory was right about a lot of those things. And what I'm really excited about is watching, watching what this could be. And what 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 our what our other filmmakers will will do with it? Yeah, yeah, it's tremendously exciting. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you completely shot the series either on the volume or in um, backlots on stages, or did you actually go to some actual locations like in the forest or in the desert? Uh, we, we did not go to anywhere in the desert, I believe. Uh, not not for, as a as a main unit. The the forest in episode four, there was a forest scene. I do not believe that they went to a forest um interesting it looked completely realistic and believable like a real location yeah i think i listen i could be wrong about that i'm 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 happy to be proven wrong but um but i know that from our from again from our planning the planning was to do it either on the volume uh or on stage or on the back lot so we did build some sets too we did build some sets okay um that were more traditional you know the shootout the, the bar um in episodes one, three, and then the shootout in episodes seven and eight was was a was a bar that we built because you, you can't put people sitting next to a wall if the if the wall's virtual on LED screen. Like anything within twenty feet of somebody needs to be real, otherwise you pick it. So yeah, it makes sense. But on the other hand, I think that um, you know in episode five, Baz built the the the, the bar from. A New Hope, the Tatooine Bar in Mos Eisley, I think a lot of that was built on, on the uh, the volume. So you know they built some for real and then some on the volume. Um, the land, landing hangar, I know that they they built on the volume and then they built a set off the volume so that the area where um, the the entrance to the landing hangar was was real set and then the the walls were were virtual. So there was you know. Yeah, there was a mix mixture. So the volume was like a set extension in that sense. Yeah, exactly. Okay, fascinating. But the intention going into it was to not rely on any actual locations. That's right. It was to keep it was again it was to cut costs in the sense that it made it very efficient filmmaking where every single location was within a, a either a small push with the carts or a tiny drive. The back lot was a was you know I think a five minute drive. So wow, very interesting. Because given the, the scope of the show and how it was actually you know visually realized convincingly in these you know various um, locations and, and environments, the fact that you didn't do that uh, and that you didn't plan to do that either is frankly a huge testament to what can be done now. Yeah, exactly. Very very interesting. Exactly. So my one final question if you have time for it is um something I think everyone can agree about the Mandalorian which is how gosh darn cute the child aka baby Yoda is. <laughs> yeah, so for much of his presence on the show he was as far as I am aware a, a real puppet and not a CGI creature. So what was it like working with the little dude on set and and uh you know did you do any kind of lighting or camera tricks to accentuate his cuteness or? Yeah. I mean, it, he was, he was amazingly well built, you know, um, by the team at Stan Winston, I believe built, built him and he was very lifelike. I mean, as lifelike as a, as a creature like that is, um, you know, we were exploring the ways to light him in prep and, and John, John said to both Baz and I and said, 
you know what? He really benefits from from backlight because of the, the the peach fuzz hair on his on his head looks really cute. Yeah, and his big ears, the way the light comes in, makes it look yep. a little kind of orangey red from the blood yeah, exactly. and the green. So so, so backlight yeah. worked really well on him. And you know, then there, there were times that I was like, yeah, it doesn't make sense to have backlight there. And John said, who cares if it makes sense? And I think John's words, and I and I and I, I framed these words in my in my office. He goes. It doesn't make sense. Where does the music come from in a movie? Like right. the mu- music just doesn't come out from the rocks. Like it's it's a suspension of disbelief, and 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 you've got to do the best thing for the the shot as it stands. And um, yeah, and we we gave the little kid a little bit of backlight sometimes, and kept his face a little bit darker, but his eyes reflect reflective. You know, it was kind of take take a bit of light off the face, a bit of light in the eyes. What what you use for the eyelid? I mean, we used a lot of digital Sputniks, so it was probably digital Sputniks depending on what the shot was. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, anything else that you um, did, any, any tricks on, on him uh, other than the backlight, anything specifically to, to uh, make him look a, a certain way or look more real or, or more cute? I don't, no, I don't believe so. I mean, it, it, we kind of just tried to, I mean, he looked, he was cute. He was a cute puppet, you know, like big eyes. And it, I think base, basically making him look not too menacing, having enough light into his eyes and the backlight, then the characterizations from the puppeteers then took over, making him look kind of yeah, more cute-like. Yeah. Yeah, well, he certainly found a way into, I think, every single viewer's heart. Yes. That little character, I really look forward to seeing uh, what happens to him next. Yes, me too. I can't wait to see season two. Yeah, well, you certainly did an amazing work on, on season one, and uh, I hope you get to get a chance now with you know, everything that's going on to give the whole thing a watch. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, to watching and, and uh, quizzing Baz on every aspect. Yeah, well, if, if that ends up happening, let me know. Maybe we can turn it into another show. <laughs> That'd be cool. Yeah, nice. Well, thank you again so much for your time. Thank you, mate. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Art of the Shot podcast. And thank you again to Greg Fraser. I really can't wait to talk with him again, and I really hope it's for Dune. I also want to say thanks to Evidence Cameras for sponsoring the show, and I really want to say thank you to all of you for listening and hopefully subscribing. I look forward to the next episode. Take care. Music